Blood Brothers Podcast, a Five Pillars Production. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh, my dear brothers, sisters, friends, and the foes out there, and welcome to a very, very special episode of the Blood Brothers Podcast with your host, Dili Hussain. The reason why it's very special is because there is no podcast that's ever been filmed or shot from a refugee camp. I'm currently at the Becca Valley, at the Becca refugee camp at the Syrian-Lebanese border, and I have a very special guest with me today, a friend of mine, a mentor, someone who I actually grew up watching on TV. And I have the great honor to call him a friend and an advisor and a brother, and that's none other than Yusuf Chambers. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Dili, how are you doing there? I'm well, Yusuf, how are you? Alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah. What a... What an awesome environment. <laughs> awesome for many reasons. I'm, I'm, I'm still kind of taken back with regards to the fact that we are actually shooting a podcast right in the middle of a refugee camp. Yeah. And brothers and sisters, it goes without saying that there'll be noise, there'll be kids maybe running about. We can't contain people who've already, whose movement has already been contained to further contain them for the sake of the podcast. So have a bit of patience. There'll be some noise in the background. There might be kids and brothers and sisters moving about. We're literally in front of a tent. And before we kick off today's podcast, which is in collaboration with one Ummah charity, there'll be a link in the, lo- in the bottom of the screen where you can uh, donate towards one Ummah's Ramadan food uh, appeal, where you can feed three families for the entirety of Ramadan for 90 pounds. Yusuf, let's kick it off. This is my first deployment. It's the first time I've ever been in a refugee camp where the oppression, the poverty, which I as a journalist have written about, spoken about, commented on, I'm seeing it for the first time. How long have you been doing humanitarian work for? Right, I mean, I was doing humanitarian work um, probably five years before I embraced Islam. So it would have been in the late 80s. Uh, I went to South Africa, went to the townships and of course it was apartheid regime still there. The government of national unity had come in and I visited the townships and we found a project where we were recycling rubbish in South Africa back in the days with with a a woman called Martha Mogadli, an awesome person. And, And that was my first kind of work in the townships and then unfortunately as happens is the national corporations I was working with, the British government that had a little hand in it, uh, NAMPAC, ESCOM, the big communication giant, they stole the idea and uh, made profit out of it. So I went back to the u- university and jacked in my place at the university. I was doing development studies. So that's how I started. When was your first deployment to a conflict zone or where you went to a camp as a result of wars? When was the first time you went to I think that would have been the Rohingya. I think that would have been Rohingya, uh, 2018. 2018? Yeah. To be honest, I mean, I've been to unofficially two places, but the official deployment with Wanumma would have been 2018, the Rohingya, and we know that there's millions, literally millions, and, and, and while those people are, a lot of them are very desperate, though. They're, you know. And we'll get to that. Look. One of the discomforts I've had mm. throughout the entirety of our trip here yeah. is taking photos and videos yeah. of the poor, the destitute, and the miskeen. Mm. Now, whilst I understand the strategic value mm. of having content 
to raise yeah. money for the very people who we're filming. Yeah. Did you ever have this discomfort? Yeah, many times. I still do. But the reality is we live in a very, a very, um, a, a, a world that's led by social media imagery. And the more powerful the imagery, the bigger the impact. So we've got to be up there with the big media organizations in gathering that footage and putting it out there. Otherwise, people won't even give. I mean, it's, it's just a sad fact that we are forced to have to do that. If Muslims were really on their deen and they really right, loved Allah, they, they were upon their shahada, you know, testifying there's only one deity of worth, worthy of worship. And Muhammad ibn Abdullah is the absolute, their absolute, you know, destiny in this world, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, who their role model, right? We wouldn't need imagery. I, I'm, I'm convinced of it. But can, can we blame, <clears throat> can we blame Muslims and, and even the, our non-Muslim counterparts, but let's focus on the Muslims, that seeing is believing? Um, wouldn't would you say that there's an element of distrust with, with the charity sector that you have to see that aid is being distributed? Yeah. You have to see that it's being given to the people that were promised to. Yes, yes. I mean, uh, look, every time I go to another camp and I see people putting branding on everything, it makes me want to vomit, to be honest. I hate it because it's a form of uh, hezbiya. It, you, you're loving the organization more than you're loving the work which sent you there. It was the, it was the refugee crisis that was created worldwide. You know, by and large, huge numbers of them being Muslims. And, but the, rea the reality is that, um, you know, we, we are, we're fighting a cause. We're fighting a bit of a losing battle um, in, in, in the sense that we've got to be taking, we've got to be taking images, we've got to be sending, we've got to fall in line with the system that we've got. You know, I don't agree with it a lot of the, uh, I, I hate social media, to be honest. Pretty good at it though. But I still hate it. <laughs> It has to be done. It's got to be done. It's one of the necessary evils of living in this 21st century, well, 20, 20th century. Yeah. I mean, look, just the very fact that we're sat here yeah. in the middle of a refugee camp mm. with a family that's probably there, a family literally around us who have probably gone through the most horrific trials and tribulations, which yeah. you and I can, wouldn't, can't imagine it. And I guess we won't even wish it upon our worst enemies. Yeah. But they've cleared the space for us even though we've said that it's not necessary, but they've cleared it. But even that, there's, a, there's an element of discomfort for me that we come as privileged Westerners. Yes. Uh, we've done our bit. Like, even when I was speaking to my mum about this deployment, she goes, oh, you know, you must be tired, so much hard work. And I was thinking to myself, that's not the case. The case is that the people who we've come to support and help, they're the ones that have gone through such hardship. At what point did you start getting desensitised to it? In, in, and by desensitised, I don't mean like, you don't have any sentiments or ghira for the ummah, but desensitized from filming, visiting, handing out aids, photos, videos, all of that. You know, there comes a time when, you know, when I first used to go into the camps, uh, I used to observe every element of, every child's face, every, every handshake, and really every engagement was important to me. Then I became I aware of the fact if I did that, I wouldn't do my job properly. A job properly, what I mean by that, is raising as much money as possible to furnish 
um, you know, uh, these, these miskeen and, and wayfarers and, and, and people that have gone fled wars and attrition and, and famine and stuff like that with what they need, essentially. So if I didn't do that, if I didn't kind of make a decision not to get involved in every element of their lives, I wouldn't be doing my job properly. And, and that's why, so it was almost immediately, as soon as uh, the first three or four camps and I, uh, you know, <laughs> you know, run out of the camp crying, you know, <laughs> it's, it, you know. Have the tears dried up? No, uh, no, no, no. Yesterday we, <laughs> we had to cry, you know. Um, some of the stories are just, um, uh, awesomely, they, they, you know, you can never even imagine that people are going through these difficulties, bro. It's hard to imagine, isn't it? It's, it's, it's very difficult to imagine. And, and you have to keep yourself as a kind of like, um, like a fly-on-the-wall documentary, sort of, rather than being totally engaged with them. And, and, and you know, we are one ummah, you know, in the sense that you won't feel, you won't feel you're part of an ummah until you do this work right. So this is one of the reasons why I do this work and I constantly remind myself how fortunate I am and how incredibly spoilt our families are living in the West for inverted brackets. I mean, even if we put it into context, right, <clears throat> many, I mean, this camp, majority are women widows, right? Yeah. Now, 11 years ago, before the civil war uh, started in Syria, they must have come from stable backgrounds. Husbands who had jobs, they had their own homes, they had some element of wealth. And if you'd have spoken to them 11 years ago and said, this will be your situation, yeah. they'd have probably thought, are you crazy? And the same, I guess, applies to us. We're comfortable today, we're not yes. comfortable tomorrow, yeah. nothing's guaranteed. Yeah. Um, but staying on, the, on, on work, or as you said, to come and do the job properly. Mm. There's a whole discussion now taking place in the UK. Yeah. Uh, without naming any organisations, talking about perhaps the Muslim community should now refocus its zakah and sadaqah strategically to UK projects. What's your thoughts on that? There's, I mean, in a, in a way, I, I'm part of that movement because I'm sick to the teeth of seeing us always on the back foot, always with our cap in hand, always begging, right? And we need to be the ones who are giving in those countries more and more in the sense that we need financial security, that we need to have um, strong masajid, strong community centers that really grow individuals that can be tomorrow's leaders. And I don't see that happening um, all the time we keep coming out here and giving 90% of our, it's a beautiful thing, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying you don't get that reward back and that, you know, in many of the ayahs in the Quran indicate that you get doubled, multiplied back, we know that. But the fact is that our, our whole mindset needs to be there and here. Okay, so let me posit something to you then, yeah? Mm. Isn't it a case that when we see a starving Rohingya, Palestinian, Syrian, Uyghur mother, an orphan, a widow, that naturally you are inclined to give towards that, then let's say five pillars, cage, mend, Islam 21C, hugs, whatever it may be. Isn't it a case that when you balance it, that these people literally need food and clothes. Whereas these guys, we appreciate the strategic work that they're doing, but they're comfortable. Because I asked, I, I, I mean, there's no data to back it, but naturally when you see someone who's starving, someone who's malnutritioned, someone who's, 
whose, whose limbs has been taken off as a result of war, aren't you emotionally just more inclined towards giving towards that? Because whether you can, if you compare the inhabitants of this camp to let's say the work of Five Pillars, you wouldn't, most people would want to give to them, right? I would want to give more to them. So are you then saying that there should be a level of balance and proportionality? Definitely. Um, you know, definitely these people need it more immediately. But then if we were to galvanize ourselves as a community back in the quote unquote West, Britain, for example, yeah. where we come from, yeah. hail from, happen to, you know, <laughs> yo. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, if we were to galvanize ourselves, educate ourselves, um, empower ourselves to be super, you know, intelligent in the way we give, we can easily give to both causes. And yes, there needs to be a more of an equilibrium. So if we're giving a thousand pounds away, you know, give definitely 200 to the UK. Give it to men's, give it to cage, give it to hugs, give it to your local masjid notice that is empowering. Said, notice how Yusuf didn't say five pillars, carry on. No, because you know, that goes without saying. You're you know, going right? to get it later. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I believe in the five pillars, but yeah. what's that got to do with this program? <laughs> do you believe in the six pillars? Yeah, no, yes. <laughs> Bro, but the, the point is that, that yes, there needs to be a, more of a, as you say, an equilibrium between giving here and this is obvious why we should give, we see. And in fact, I'm not worried so much about the limbs missing. It's, it's, it's the look on the eyes. It's the look in the eyes of the kids who've actually witnessed their mothers being killed in front of them and stuff like that. And, that, and, and, and being ripped away from their, the corpses of their loved ones, you know. That is far more powerful. That's what you don't see. That's what they don't see, actually. When you come here, you see it every day. You see it every day, and it's it's horrific. It's uh, yeah, but 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 at the same time, it, it's going to happen to us if we don't support organisations like like men, like men that here he goes again. Know, uh, five pillars. Um, cage. Have men paid you for this? Hugs. No, no. Are you, are you a men agent or something? No, no. But men <laughs> men happen to be in my centre. Okay in Leicester and I, I support their work and if Cage were here in, in Leicester I would do the same but point being that there has to be a lot more focus on strategic giving right for our future because it's not you and me we're, we're gonna pass away before pretty, pretty much we'll pass away before the real difficult stuff starts happening i believe don't in, write in, me off so quickly please no no you, you okay let me let me say me <laughs> <laughs> allahu alam no, we can be written I off anytime <laughs> Colos, we can be written off anytime no 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 but brother honestly you, you you've raised this point and it's such an important point and uh, and uh, but the good news is, is that people are waking up the shabab the youngsters in the uk in the west in america in canada in wherever they are they're starting to wake up and realize that they don't have to give like Uncle Saab and, and, and Umiji and, and so on and so forth have been giving hundreds of thousands out, mashallah, may Allah reward them with, with a palace in paradise for that. But, but also for us to really, really awaken the youth, get them out of the street language, get them out of the street thinking uh, of the criminal, criminality that they've 
become accustomed to, that the music videos that they're watching, which are making them love this dunya and, and, and forget about the Prophet Muhammad wasalam, and the Quran, which they grew up with, you know? Yes. I'm going to have to. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm for that. I'm going to have to cancel that episode of Dutchavelli now. But anyway, <laughs> on that point, brothers and sisters, uh, on the lower third, you should see a donation link to one Ummah's Ramadan food parcel campaign, where for ninety pounds you can feed a family of three for the entirety of Ramadan. Immense reward to be had there, inshallah, in Syria, in Bangladesh, in Palestine, um, and eleven other countries. The link should be below. On that note, about strategically giving money to domestic organizations who are thinking about a long-term future of Muslim minorities in their respective Western countries. In the context of the UK, we know that the Charity Commission has had a disproportionate focus towards Muslim charities, right? And this has been proven. Yes. The Guardian, the BBC, they've all covered it, mm. right? So this is not something that we've concocted or made up. And some have argued that one of the dangers of refocusing our sadaqah and our zakah in the UK is actually cutting the one tie that we still have with the Muslim world and that is the sadaqah, the aid work, the humanitarian work that this still remains one of the bonds that remains within us and that once you chop that off or once you start creating a narrative that it's all about British Muslims, American Muslims, Canadian Muslims, French Muslims, Algerian all of a sudden you've, you've forgotten the Palestinians and the Kashmiris and the Uyghurs and the Syrians and the Iraqis and the Afghans and the Kurds and wherever it may be. Can you see that potential danger if we start excessively focusing on the UK or in our respective Western countries? You know, back in the days I was, uh, I was a socialist. Before Islam, I dabbled in socialism. And we looked at the... Don't dabble in it anymore? No, no, not really. Not really. But, but I'm, I'm very aware of it because I, 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 I was selling social, Socialist Worker Party papers on the street. I was doing stuff like that. The reason is because I wanted to do something, for God's sake. I didn't know what I'd just seen the poor, I've done my charity work, and now I want to actually change. It's, it's the ideologies, right? And, you know, the, the reason I mention this is, is, is because the, Islam is an international ideology. You can't disassociate what's happening with the Uyghurs right now in China um, and um, we, you know, with the Rohingya uh, f who fled unimaginable suffering in Burma, with, with the Syrians that, you know, and, and one geopolitical state that's making it happen. And, and Islam has all the answers. Don't tell me it doesn't have the, all the answers. I wouldn't be sitting here otherwise, you know. And, and that's why I'm not a socialist now. I'm a, I'm a Muslim. I'm a proud Muslim, you know, and, and, and I had to come out to the camps and I have to go back to run my center. And my center is about disseminating the, the beautiful message of Islam through actual, actualizing the, the faith. Now, a lot of people know, know me in Leicester, you know, as, as a guy who goes out to the camps regularly and they have respect for me and they come to the center and they listen to me more. Now, you know, and I, we don't just support Muslims, right? We support everyone alive. Um, so for me, you know, um, I've learned in the past making mistakes of being part of a, a national campaign to, um, to socialize Britain, <laughs> you know, 
um, that you can't do it that way. You've got to be, you've got to be there, and you've got to be here, and you've got to, you've got to have this equilibrium in your thinking, in your, in your intelligence, yeah. your research that you do, yeah. the PhDs, the PhDs that people are doing amongst the Muslim community. You know, I mean, we know there's more PhDs being done by non-Muslims about Islam, about the history of Islam, about the systems of Islam. And what makes it so? What made it so successful? And how they can take it apart now? <laughs> Why is it that we Muslims are not doing that? You know. I think I think there's some level of agreement here that look, we, there is a focus that needs to be had in the UK and broadly yeah. speaking because times are getting hard. You see. They are. Times yeah. are getting immensely hard. We've yeah. been talking about it throughout mm. our trip mm. that things are not going to get easier in Europe. Mm. Things no. are getting harder. We're looking at yeah. Switzerland yeah. imminently to ban the burqa. Yes. We're looking at the situation yes. of the. Uh, mm. Imam's Charter yeah. in France, yeah. where you have to basically say that the law of the Republic is higher and greater than the law of God. Yes. So the Imams have to sign a charter. Yes. We've had the RSE issue in the UK. Mm. So the situation is not getting any easier. So we know yeah. that there has to be a strategic focus in our yes. respective countries. But what we're basically agreeing on is there needs to be a level of balance and yes. proportionality, right? Yes, yes, definitely. Yeah. So now moving on to aid work and humanitarian work from a spiritual and political point of view. And it's a conversation that we've had also throughout our journey mm. for the last couple of days. Can you detach politics from humanitarian work? As a humanitarian aid worker, can you detach it from politics? And by detachment, I mean from as an organizational perspective and as an individual Muslim. Well, organizationally, we're sat on by the Charities Commission, by Ten other organisations that see a uh, uh, higher yeah. internationally, yeah. you know, that we don't need to mention their names. Yeah. I mean, so the, the first thing is, in, in, organisationally, they're very restricted about what they can do. Muslim organisations, individually, we can do what we like. Bottom, bottom line is that there will be <laughs> a blowback. There will be some comeback yeah. on that. But I mean, so so I mean, I studied politics and uh, third world, they used to call it third world development, then they called it development studies, because yep. they made that change, you know. And I, and I, I, I recognize that political change, it goes alongside economic change and spiritual change. It's all together. Now, the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, was the most incredible. I mean, as, as uh, Michael Hart wrote in the book in 1974, you know, 100 most, most influential people, it's not, it's no surprise actually to people who, who know the man that he's number one. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And I recall uh, Michael Hart specifically said the reason why he ranked him number one was yeah. he created a social and moral and spiritual order that spanned beyond the Arabian Peninsula. Yeah, he did. So, I mean, if I were to ask you, what do you think are the three main causes for why people become refugees? What are they? That, that's, uh, that's a pretty deep question. <laughs> I'd say... Um, war? I'd say war is not... But war is part of the issue, but what has caused the war, which is economic, wanting to gain imperialism. Neo-imperialism, as, as we would call we it now. We got the eventually. Yeah, it is, it is. It's, it's uh, wanting to expand territories, expand wealth, um, ownership of human beings, uh, you know, these people are owned. They're owned by someone. They've been taken out of their place of natural place of with their loved ones. 
um, that they've been there for centuries. Those families have been there for centuries, if not longer. And they've been ripped out of there because of the war that was caused by this expansionist madman sitting in some office with his suited and booted crew, you know, men and women. Um, and and, 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 and that, that's the, the ultimate cause. Number two is the total lack of education. And when I say education, I don't mean um, what we see in the universities in the world today. Islamic education? I'm, I'm saying edification. Oh, edification. Okay. Edification, meaning mothers and fathers sitting with their children and saying, what is life about? Who are you? What are you about? Ahmed, Sumeya, what's your role in life? You want to become a doctor so you can get that big fat cow, a car and, and, and that four-wheel drive vehicle over there? You know, what, what is your, what makes your, what rocks your boat? You know, really having those conversations. I do that with my children. I have to, because I'm just going to be a hypocrite if I don't do that. I mean, I, so essentially, we, we, need, we need that, and, and, and that's the second thing, which is education. The education system has now become very blinkered and very narrow, and, and you know, you, you can study a gnat's wing now, and you do a PhD on the gnat's wing. You know, I'm not, if, you I know, if I recall, I think it's Cardiff University, you can even do a degree on David Beckham studies. Well, that, that's, that's well, quite it, well, amazing, yeah. you know, quite amazing. But I, I mean, it does bend it quite well though, doesn't it? That was a good one. <laughs> Now I'm just trying to work out, is the David Beckham studies more important or photosynthesis on Dr. Samar's <laughs> PhD? I'd probably say David Beckham has got a few things over Samar's Mr. Butt. Samar's going to write me off, you know, after this. <laughs> but look, on, on the issue of root causes, right? Yeah. War is as a result of expansion, expansionism, uh, which is a result of uh, global geopolitical control, yeah. uh, hegemonic control, whatever it may be. Mm. Is it then not the case that charity work humanitarian work that mm. essentially what you're doing mm. is that you're just a, applying a band-aid and a plaster on a, on a very mm. deep wound that will not just mm. reappear it will reappear in other parts mm. of the Ummah's body yeah and, the, and, the, and there are people that uh, want us to continue this work in the manner that we are doing it right now without making any amendments to that model mm. you know uh, but then we have to return to the Sunnah of Rasulullah because there is a, a need for one to absolutely to educate yourself and your family and your uh, every shepherd is, is is in control of their flock and so there's people out there who've got five children three children four children and two wives and three wives and whatever so you're totally responsible for bringing them up as Muslims that will be responsible and will recognize the failings of the world today and make efforts to change it for the future progeny that we have today so yes, I, I mean, uh, that's part of it. Um, I didn't give you the third part of the, 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 third, the third reason, because I said education, I said uh, this massive uh, hegemonic. You said um, imperialism? Imperialism. And edification, edification. lack of education. What was the third and, one? And, and I say, the th well, obviously, and I absence should have put this, the, the, the absence of, of the, the Dean of Islam. Or the Caliphate. Yeah. The, the <laughs> well, look. I ain't going to use that term, but I would, <laughs> I would use the term um, leadership. Okay. I, would, I, I definitely agree that leadership is, is something that we are sorely missing. Thank you. So we got uh, there eventually. Yeah. So, so, so we're talking about the absence of an Islamic conscience 
transparent, accountable, morally correct, sunnah-based leadership. Mm. One that cares about the affairs yes. of the ummah. Yes, yes, and that's what I was talking about when I was talking about the family, because that's the first bit of leadership. And the second bit of leadership is for the, you draw a circle or a concentric circle around your two neighbors there. And then another one, uh, there's 40 neighbors according to the understanding of, of a neighbor in Islam. And then you draw it around your, now if you haven't dealt with that bit, my, my worry is that it's not gonna have an impact when you go out and start calling them. Can I just posit one thing to you? Yeah, go for it. Did the Prophet wait for Abu Lahab to become Muslim before he gave da'wah and sought Nusra from the Ansar? No, no. So, I mean, I'm not saying that you shouldn't do that. You're saying but do you, both. Your focus should be on these initial concentric circles. Try and get that right as best. Put all your efforts in because, of course, it's up to Allah whether those people are going to no, no, respond. We also, we also know the Prophet when he first was given prophethood, mm. he went to his family first. Yes. Khadija radiallahu anhu. Yes. Abu Talib, Ali radiallahu anhu, Abu Bakr. So it was his immediate inner circle. It was right? immediate inner exactly. circle. And, and, and it's the people, but, but there, there is a big problem, bro. Go on. And this is what I think you will all, everyone's going to agree to this. If they don't, there's, there's something wrong, bro. Okay. With me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I think the, the, the real issue is, is, is ourselves, nafsi, nafsi. Because are we good enough? to call people to a moral code which we are not even abiding by. I mean, in the sense that our love for the dunya is outweighing our love for Allah and our love for the, the, the best example to mankind, Rasulullah. I agree. And I think that is the main issue that stops us from... You know, that one of the reasons why I came out to do this work, because I was involved in Ayira. Yeah, with Abdurrahim, my beautiful brother, Abdurrahim Green, and... He's and, just returning your compliments, yeah. Green. That's what he's doing, go on. And, um, you know, mashallah, what's that? A spider there? Spider, that's, right. that's direct from the yeah. camp, that yeah. one is. Hopefully it don't, doesn't bite, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and the da'wah is not just about having conversations, good conversations with people. It's about bringing Islamic reality back to people's lives. So I was thinking the center, and the, the work in the fields. Mm. So Allah chose me to do that work. I mean, I, people just said, look, it's, it's time that you came with us and I came with them. Mm. And it made me grow in my desire to help as many people as possible. And that hasn't stopped. But the reality is that um, the da'wah is kind of not working unless we've got a movement politically you know, economically and socially. Multifaceted. Multifaceted. It has to be. Can't just be about having a beautiful conversation and they agree with you and they go away, they take shahada and then there's nothing for them to join with. Let me posit something to you, Yusuf, and forgive me in advance. I don't mean to offend you in any shape or form. Do you feel that charity work is essentially trying to tidy up the mess and the failure and the murderous negligence of states. Let me just give you one example. Let's, let's move it away from the Muslim sector. Let's just look at the way the UK handled the coronavirus pandemic. Why did it take a 101 year old man to do all that walking to raise money for the NHS, which we're paying taxes for? Why was the Awan, the public, the British public, raising money for something which we pay our taxes for. 
And the UK government was just okay to just give us all a clap, mm. the NHS clap. Mm. Is it not the case that we're doing the same? War, corruption, economic mm. looting, whether it's mm. done, whether we're doing it to ourselves or we've sabotaged externally, isn't the mere existence of charity and humanitarian work merely just trying to tidy up where states are failing? I look at the issue as being a lowest hanging fruit right now because I can see the oranges, I'm going to pick them. It has to, I have to do that. I could go to the tree and burn the tree down and cause a revolution. But why? <laughs> no, one said to, no one said to burn the tree down. But, but in, in, in the sense, if, if I don't pick the, the fruit and then hand it to my brothers and sisters who are right now in need, and then when I go, I mean, my idea would be to go to the field and make a more politically aligned statement to draw the ummah together, to get them to think together, work together, educate together, um, and ultimately to find solutions to let these people return home, okay, in peace, in harmony, yeah? But right now that is not within my realm. I cannot possibly see... I do not have the vision of Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam. I do not have wahi, but I have the example of that incredible bunch of people that changed the majority of the world within the first hundred years but if we of have, Islam. But, but if we have 10 million Yusuf Chambers aid workers, I think like this, then, then where will that come from? No, but it will come from because I believe it in my heart that we do need to do that work together. Rome wasn't created in a day and it won't be destroyed in a day. But Medina was created in 10 years. Yes, but with this man who, like I said, is, I mean, just incredible. If you, if you think, are we, we are a mere shadow of the worst of the worst companions. I think it's important for me to say for our viewers and listeners that, wallahi, Brother Yusuf, I know, has been, played an integral and pivotal role in bringing various Muslim organizations together. Muslim organizations used to consider each other deviants. I know mm. that you played a key role in bringing many of these organizations together yeah. who are still together and working yeah. as much as they can together. So may Allah bless you and reward you for that. I mean, I mean, I mean, and you, Dilly. I'm trying to keep the name off thing and you're just name dropping it. <laughs> just don't care. Just let no, no, but on. you know why? Because I've got my utmost respect for these organizations. Some of them are working under incredibly strained conditions. No, but you played, a good, you, know, you played a key role in bringing everyone together. Yeah, and you know, and it, it was tough. And I, you know, and once I'd done it, I had to walk away because I wasn't the man to lead. I'm not a leader. You're a maestro, you brought everyone together, yeah? <laughs> Look, bring the, bringing the podcast to a close. Yeah. All right. Our brothers and sisters, look at the donation link at the bottom. 90 pounds. You can feed three families for the entirety of Ramadan in Syria, in Bangladesh, in Palestine, and 11 other countries. Please donate generously, inshallah. inshallah. Bring the podcast to a close. Long-term solutions without using the K or the C word, yeah? Mm. Let's put that aside. Long-term solutions. We spoke about, inshallah, the formation of a national waqf yes. in the UK. Yes. We've spoken about advocacy and soft mm. power influence and lobbying. Yeah. Governments that appear to be Muslim friendly or sympathetic. Yeah. It's crazy that when we talk about Muslim governments, yeah. we still have to say those who are sympathetic to Muslim yes, causes. Yes, yes, yes. Because that 57 
Muslim majority secular nation states, yeah. the vast majority, if not all of them, ha are in the pockets of the five greater powers yes. in some shape or form. Yes. But even with that, what are the long term solutions? To a global refugee crisis which is mostly Muslim, mm. a fantastic report published by Ayan Institute yes. spoke about the refugee crisis, yes. of which I believe. I think it was a hundred million. Yeah, it was. Hundred million refugees that are Muslims. That's point mm. one of a billion. And I mm. think the number is actually much higher than that. But that's just like that's whatever just, stats yeah. is out there. Yeah. What's the long-term solution? What do you have in mind? Well, well, certainly, you know, think tanks. Uh, we need international think tanks that can persuade, cajole, meet, greet. Lobby. Decision makers, yes. I mean, I, I've kind of done a little bit, not because I was chosen to do that, because just because so I was there at the right time. And the Khalijis loved you, innit? <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, I'm a white man. <laughs> what do you want? The Khalijis love I mean, you know, so, you know, but, but I've been in those majlis where there's been decision makers, and I've, I've just said it because I just say it the way it is sometimes. I've learned increasingly more and more to temper what I say okay. in those settings because you can upset people a lot and they will not, won't call you back and you lose that contact as a potential way of bringing the ummah together but I do think you know like so I've done my fair share of changing people's minds we need an international body we've got IAN Institute that's just happened it was just happening um, to, to, to bring people together and get them to think um, similarly. Not always totally on an Islamic line, but, but certainly let's work together, uh, you know. Which uh, is an Islamic line. It is an Islamic line, but, but in, we're not going to be quoting hadiths and ayat from the Quran and referring to scholars all the time. We're going to be saying, look guys, look at this. This is happening. Look at this as a solution. And, and, you know? and, and from my understanding, with the launch of Ayan Institute, they want to focus on giving experts, defer, defer the theory and ideas to the experts. Yes, right? yes, absolutely. So it's, it's not just that, that but there's, there's a need for economic, international economic organizations that think out of the box about how we can bring up the new leadership. Do you know there's an organization uh, called Campus Crusade for Christ. Campus Crusade, they're yeah. huge. Huge. They're massive. Hundreds of, million, hundreds of millions of uh, you know, me members worldwide. Yeah. And they're using all of these things. They've been using these systems to get people, the top hundred companies in the world, to infiltrate the, their <laughs> management systems with people who think like Christians. Well, can I just say something? <laughs> the Campus Crusader guys, yeah, they can do that because there's not a global witch not, hunt. There's not a global witch hunt. Yeah, you know that just in the UK, they're, they're trying to uh, purge out Islamist entries. Mm. So we can barely get a job as a civil servant without, yes. without our views being microscopically di dissected. And and you know, but, so is that a but, fair but, but that's part of the the role that those institutions have to take. The think tanks, um, the the economic institutions that are going to fund these people is to train them how to speak, what to say, what not to say, even to the extent that they don't overtly have to look the part. I'm not saying they should shave their beards and take their hijabs off and stuff like that, but I'm saying 
they can they can they can appear to be part of and they all for all intents and purposes they are part of a system but they have new ideas they have fresh impetus that maybe those guys need yeah, I'm just you know while you were saying that just the hadith of you know war is deception just came to mind not that yes. I'm saying that we're wrong you're going to get us in trouble this guy man <laughs> you've done enough to get yourself into trouble all the time bro is there any concluding words you want to give to brothers and sisters who are already in humanitarian aid work or thinking about it is there any bits of advice that you can yeah. give to them in terms of the emotional and spiritual preparation mm. and these kind of things yeah make lots of dhikr honestly remember allah try to you know you know pray your fajr on time you know i really would say fajr is like the link in to allah the creator of the the hulk the the seven heavens samawati wal ard everything you know and you're going out into a world full of challenges full of deceit full of crazy people with greed avarice and ideas that you you're going to have to combat and the only way that you can really combat that is to have an attachment with the creator i get very angry when i'm back in the uk and i lose that i sometimes lose that connectivity and then i come back to these places and i regain the connectivity because i see these guys and i see them smiling with their, these, with, with their situation massive you know i mean i'm saying and then literally they will tell you I just I've lost 15 members of my family and they'll smile at you and say thank you very much for what you're doing you know That's and that, and and that coupled with the dhikr and the remembrance of the creator and working as an an ummah to try and dissuade people from making the wrong decisions about how to counteract the terrible impacts of that avarice and that greed that we've spoken about which is driving these people to leave their loved ones and leave their homes and be smashed up um ultimately um it 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 it's it's to find a balance yes you do need to speak against it and the prophet muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam said none of you will truly believe until you love for others as you love for yourself but more importantly if you see an evil you have to speak against it you speak against it if you can't speak against it change it with change your hands it with your hands hands voice heart so yes the, you move it with your hand then you you speak against it and then the lowest form of faith yeah. is that you hate it in your heart now we all of us hate to see this in our heart but the question is how can we change it palpably with our hands how can we make that happen and that's where it comes in we need to get on board with organizations and institutes in your home country so that you can stop you can let these guys go back home eventually it might take 100 years but allah knows best do something do something so on the day of judgment we can say to allah that we did diddly squat yeah and that that's what really frightens me if you don't do this work then you have to contribute towards the I'm people who are doing it i'm worried about those who are not doing any work that's that's that's, that's a more scarier thought well there are there are there are millions of muslims out there are still waiting for imam mahdi to come for anything yes you yes. know they exist yeah yeah, yeah 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 of course and you know that better than i do you've you've interviewed um a lot of people um along the um the lines yeah and um 
you know, it is that one thing which is actualizing the message of Islam publicly. Yes, it was an absolute pleasure. It was an absolute nice honor to, to be with you on this trip. May Allah accept your work, my brother. I mean, and uh, make you a heavy in your mizan. I mean, brothers and sisters, I hope you enjoyed this first of its kind podcast from a refugee camp in the Syrian Lebanese border. Just a final <coughs> reminder to donate generously to one Ummah's Ramadan food appeal where for £90 you can feed three families for the entirety of Ramadan. We know of the famous hadith, the very well-cited hadith of the reward of the one who feeds a fasting person iftar. Now imagine feeding the miskin, the most destitute, the most needy iftar for an entire month. The ajr is immense. We need it for our akhirah. They don't need it for this life. We need it for our akhirah. So please donate generously. Donate as if you're feeding your own family, your own parents, siblings and children. Subscribe to the Five Pillars YouTube channel. Leave a comment. Share the video. And until next time, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Blood Burma's podcast. Five Pillars production.